we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, director of the center and host of the podcast. And we're actually in El Paso this week and are interviewing somebody who's very knowledgeable about the border issue, Victor Monjares, who teaches and is a researcher at the University of Texas, El Paso, UTEP, they call it, U-T-E-P. And he has a long history with border patrol and then outside the government researching the issue of border control. He was the head of the border patrol in the Tucson sector and in the El Paso sector, and then a variety of other high-level positions in border patrol, and has been for a number of years now, and he'll tell us a little more about that, at the university, writing and teaching and researching about immigration control or border control specifically issues. Victor, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And if we could start just on what's your story? How'd you get into the border issue? How'd you get the border bug or however that's referred to? I, I would imagine like most people when they're young and starting off family, you, you had a, I had a job and I was looking for a career. Right. Right. And, and the Border Patrol happened to be hiring. At that time, there was only about 4,000 Border Patrol agents wow. nationwide. Now there's almost 20,000. There's right? almost 20,000. And to kind of put that in perspective, when I retired as a sector chief out of Tucson, I was responsible for 4,500 Border Patrol agents. Just you? Just me. And, and so, which was larger than the actual nationwide number of agents. And so, once I retired, I uh, felt that, that my experiences and knowledge just would be ashamed to, to waste that. And so, I felt that a, a university would be kind of a perfect fit to share those experiences and uh, the research. And, and so, I really enjoy researching topics that are related to the Homeland Security Enterprise. So you, when you retired, you were in Arizona. You weren't, you didn't retire here in El Paso. Actually, I, I was a sector chief in Arizona, and the last year and a half, my family had lived in El Paso. Okay, I was a sector chief in El Paso prior to going to Tucson. Oh, I see. Okay, so you had connections here already. Yes. Yeah, so, so yeah. my my family was here from our uh, number of moves that we did during our course of a year, and you know, like anyone else, that our grandparents, our grandkids were here. Oh, okay. Well, then, yeah. Why well, move? Sense, my my move away, right? If we're going to come back, so. So I've been here at UTEP now since 2011. Most of our research is either the Department of State or Department of Homeland Security. Oh, so it's funded by the government. Well, many of the research grants are. My position is funded by the university. Right. And these grants allow me to bring in other staff and students and things of that I nature. I see. Okay. And you teach as well? I mean, you have students? I teach. I teach in our master's program within the criminal justice department. Mm -hmm. And the classes I normally teach are like organized crime, criminal justice on the U.S.-Mexican border. Criminal Justice Administration, Leadership and Management okay. uh, type. So you're not teaching undergrads, though? No, yeah, it's, right, it's, it's right. master master students Interesting. Is, uh, is that, that I, I teach. Well, the first thing I think I wanted to jump off from, and then we'll talk about what's going on in the news and uh, that sort of thing, is a paper you co-authored recently. And it, a lot of it's theoretical, so I don't want to scare people away. Don't, don't tune out yet. We're not talking theory. <laughs> but the 
upshot, as I understood it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that controlling the border isn't just about controlling the border. In other words, that there's things that happen before someone gets to the border, there's things that happen inside the country. In other words, if you had a hundred mile tall fence and with machine guns and alligators and all that, it's, that's not the sum total of border control. It's absolutely correct. You know, what I've learned in my experience, my various roles in border patrol and leadership and as researching and, and reflecting back is that we've always treated the border as simply as a linear line on a map. Right. And asked our border patrol agents to kind of play a goal line defense every single day. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, goal line defense. You're right. Every okay. single day, every month, every year. But quite frankly, there are variables away from the border, the immediate border area, that have, have an impact on border security. And those things could be things that we don't often think about. It could be natural disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes, economic conditions in other, you know, in other right. countries in, in the U.S. And, you know, oftentimes I'm asked about or told, you know, if economically the U.S. is in a recession, you know, the, the immigration is not that, not that great. Right. Well, I've never seen anyone leave the U.S. Yeah, it's for Mexico. Yeah. Says I'm going to get a job in Mexico because right. I can't find one here. Let alone Honduras, uh, Honduras or uh, right? somewhere else. So, yeah. so that's usually a silly argument, right? You know, looking at local media or national media, foreign media mm -hmm. has an impact. How so? You mean like they spread the word about conditions and people act on that? Absolutely. I think a, a great case in point, a recent one, is the unaccompanied children that was happening right. about three or four years ago, really the high numbers. Well, the guides and the smugglers react much quicker than American Congress. And quite frankly, sometimes they're smarter, right? Without naming any names. No, yeah, without any, <laughs> and so they figured out loopholes, right? And the one was the unaccompanied children, the UACs. Right. And so as soon as that spigot was open, it created a flow that the U.S. government just didn't know how to handle. But that spigot was opened up by these guides and smugglers. And then we had every media outlet covering that, pointing out, the vulnerabilities. I see. So they were advertising for the smugglers. Basically. Yes, they were. There was, you know, it's part of that information process, and that works the other way as well. You know, when uh, President Trump was in office, he spoke much about the fencing and, and things of that nature. And operationally, it has great value in urban areas, and a little bit in the rural areas, not so much in remote. It wasn't so much that tool that he was promoting; it was the concept of, hey, border security or the lack of is no longer tolerable. Right. And that message then was amplified by the media. Yes, absolutely. And then so you have jurisdictional things, you know, or court interpretations. Right. When you're having things like, let's say, DACA or- Or the Flores, Flores settlement. The Flores right. settlement. All those have big impacts on the men and women right on the border. And that doesn't even consider the legitimate flows through a port of entry. Right. When you look at the difficult task that a CBP officer has at a port of entry, it's, you know, make sure that you ensure high levels of border security, but do it quickly. Right. You know, so it doesn't really hurt us economically. So the ecosystem is what we're proposing is, you know, we need to stop looking at it simply as a linear line. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's very important. That's a very important facet of border security. Right. But too often it begins there and ends there. Right. So along those lines, and you kind of referred to it, what are your thoughts about physical barriers, wall, fence, yeah. that sort of thing? They work. You know, I'm looking back in the last 35 years, and anytime you have a physical barrier, in particular in an urban area, right? literally where, where someone who, without a fence has to make an entry and literally in seconds to minutes can get lost in plain sight. Right. If there's buildings and stuff. There's you buildings. Just, and right. You could blend in with touristy areas. Mm -hmm. 
markets, things of that nature. And so then along the southern border, then you're looking for every person that's 5'10", black yeah. hair, medium complexion, which I just, <laughs> luck. I just described myself. <laughs> yeah, right, right. On that, so good luck, you know, yeah. on that. And uh, um, agents really have that second some minutes to detect that entry, mm -hmm. identify and classify that, respond and resolve it. Those four things that they got to do. And if it's without a barrier, it's seconds. Right, right. And so you're looking for timing. It's, it's minutes. Right. And so they definitely work in rural areas, closer to the urban areas. There's a, certainly a functionality for that. As you get away from the urban areas, uh, become less functional. Then you look at pedestrian, or I'm sorry, uh, vehicular Vehicle. barriers. And it's all about timing. I think in the past, DHS and prior to that, INS did a really poor job explaining the functionality of barriers right or managing expectations the expectation was well, you build it and it'll stop coming right and no it, it was a tool it's a speed bump yes in it, a sense yes it, it allows law enforcement to again detect that entry identify and classify respond and resolve it you can do that in a, at higher levels of efficiency yeah it slows it slows down the aliens basically is what it amounts absolutely to. the one thing that i mean this is always in a sense i've sort of seen this as self-evident what you just described and people who had this idea that it was a magic force field or something yeah. like Star Trek and it's going to keep people out was always silly. But your point about in remote areas, it doesn't really do much. I get that, but I've, I've kind of, my thinking has changed a little and I wanted to see if you had some thoughts on it. And the reason is this asylum crisis we're seeing because we are now seeing busloads of people, grandmas, kids, everybody, and all they're doing is stepping across. Maybe there's a vehicular barrier, say, there. They just scoot under it, and they turn themselves into the Border Patrol. That would not be possible if there were a pedestrian, an actual, you know, 18, 20-foot-high, whatever it is, barrier there. And just as one example that really struck me, once we went, when there was only a vehicle barrier, to Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument in Arizona, right on the border, beautiful place. This is when it was more dangerous. We actually had to be accompanied by armed escorts. And there's a barrier there. You know, they call it a Normandy barrier is sometimes what they call it. It's kind of like a, like a rail, split rail fence, but made out of metal, you know, I-beams. And when you're there at the border looking on the Mexican side, the main highway that connects Baja to the mainland of Mexico is about 20 yards away, and there's trucks and cars driving. And a couple of years ago, I saw a night vision video that CBP had posted of a whole busload of people literally at the spot that we were at, pulling over onto the asphalt, letting everybody out, and they were all scooting under and over the fence and turning themselves in. So does that suggest that pedestrian fencing, even in some remote areas, at least has some value in preventing that kind of gaming of the asylum system? Potentially, yes. But as a former operator, I, I would, if I'm looking at investments, right? I see. Okay. If I'm looking at investments, I'm looking at three things. It's the personnel, right? technology, and infrastructure. Now, the infrastructure can take the form of pedestrian barriers, vehicle barriers, good roads. So the Border Patrol can actually, get around quicker. Can actually be on the border, right? Right. Areas like the, you describe at Oregon Pipe. The access to that area is horrible. Mm -hmm. You're either really close to the border, and then you've got to go 20, 25 miles north to get another east-west access road. Right. So once an entry is affected, you have to leapfrog 25 miles. So you've allowed the entry to continue for 25 miles. I see. Okay. And so it becomes problematic. So is it, you know, is it is that investment better with a pedestrian 
or is it better with access roads and technology where I can put, let's say, a camera systems and say, okay, I've, I've spotted, I've got time to be able to direct resources to it. Because somewhere like, let's say, uh, in that area, like Lukeville, right? That's the nearest port of entry. Right. And so let's say you've got a group that comes into Lukeville. Now, Lukeville will never be confused with an urban area, right? Like a, a metropolis right, area. Right, right. But it has some of the same functions that, let's say, San Ysidro, El Paso has. Right. The ability to hide in plain sight. Right. Routes of egress away from the border. Many people willing to move you away from, from that border. Right. And so it becomes a timing issue. If I don't address that entry, Right, right, away. Right, right away, I can lose that, as opposed to someone that's further out west in a rural area or a remote area where I've got a little bit more time to be able to, be able to address those. There's a functionality that comes right. up, and, and at some point, you start to lose that return of investment. What I have found is that in most cases, when Congress has allocated funding, it's usually one or the other for something. It's never, oh yeah, here's a system. Yeah. And I think when... Uh, when the agency grew, right, from 10,000, the, the 20,000 Border Patrol agents, right. that provided a very clear picture of something was being done, right? It's nothing like boots in the ground, agents, you know, uh, sure. coming in. And at some point, you go, hey, stop. Give me some physical barriers. Give me some technology right. to, you know, see people enter or, or even communicate in rugged terrains from agent to agent. Right, right. Yeah, because there's no cell coverage in a lot of those places, There's no right? cell coverage and very poor radio reception in, right. in terms of- Oh, because of the hills up and down? Because of the hills and, oh, and you have to have sense of repeaters and things of that nature. Interesting. And what I learned in my career in Tucson, for example, Totemotive Nation, you have- Is the Indian Reservation the, on the border It's in the Indian Reservation. They have about 76 miles of border that aligns with Mexico, so it becomes a, a key component for the Border Patrol to operate it. Right. And so you have mountain ranges that normally run north and south. Mm -hmm. kind of into Mexico, and then you have a series of hundreds of hills mm -hmm. and big valleys. And then, so you have to set up repeater systems I see. for radios. Okay. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for the Border Patrol, is many of those hilltops are sacred burial grounds. Oh, oh. And so now that you have, not only do you have technology needs, infrastructure needs, then you have social and culture right. requirements that just makes it a little more difficult and more complex as simply as you know, do we have a wall or not have a wall? Right, right, uh, absolutely. It's, it's a system. Right. And that's part of the ecosystem, right? It's developing tools and being very conscientious of what's said or what's not said. Right, right. If we could talk maybe about a little more about what's in the news now, what do you think about what happened in Del Rio? Did the Border Patrol get the shaft politically on this? And maybe actually, maybe the first question is just operationally, what do you think we should have learned from what happened in Del Rio? Well, first of all, it should not have been a surprise to middle America, right? I think middle America has a better opinion or understanding of what's happening on the border than, let's say, 20 years ago. Right. And that 20 years ago, it was considered a California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas problem. And so we should not have been a surprise since February. You know, the messaging has been that we're not going to be tough on border security. Mm -hmm. And so you see the numbers from that time frame it, every month. It's increased, so we should not have been surprised. The problem with all that, though, is that you look at the men and women; they're holding the bag, right? right? They're holding the bag. The border patrol agents, yes, yeah. and they did get the shaft. You know, that's putting that very nicely. Yeah, they did get the shaft on that. When you look at the sheer number that was underneath that bridge, you mm -hmm. know, the numbers range anywhere from twelve to eighteen thousand, depending. Right. You know, that's bigger than most college basketball arenas in the United States, right? In terms yeah. of occupancy, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're gone overnight. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, they, and not really gone. You know, they were said they were being processed. Most of them were let go into the United States. Most of them right? were let go in the United States. And that's only going to fuel the flow. Yeah. Because these folks that, that were released are going to get wherever they resettle at, they're going to call home and say, hey, it's not as bad. You got to put up for a little bit of, let's say, living on a bridge, squalor, not knowing, but you'll eventually get released. Right. And so this flow is not going to stop until. The messaging and the policies change. Change. Right. So in a sense, if you're talking about an ecosystem of border control, part of it is people who were let go calling home and telling them they got away with it. That's part of the, if you will, the ecosystem of the flow across the border. Absolutely. It's, that's a big part, actually. Right. right? That's, that's a big part of keeping that spigot open. Mm-hmm. All of the administration spoken about, hey, you know, don't come, things of that nature. The actions do not match. Right. The verbiage. It's no one's paying attention to that. Yeah, that's interesting because that's what I was thinking when the vice president went down to Guatemala and said, do not come. And she said it twice. Do not come. And so apparently that meant they were serious. And as the words were coming out of her mouth, they were letting people go into the United States. It's been hollow messaging. And that's part of that ecosystem. A lot of that is national policy. Mm -hmm. And we often forget policy doesn't have to be always have to be an action. It could be simply doing nothing. Okay, that's true. Yeah. Inaction is a policy. It is a policy. Right. And that's exactly how I think if you or most Border Patrol agents along the southwest border and the northern border, they would tell you, you know, it isn't that they've been instructed to do certain things. They've been instructed, you know, it's not allowed not to do their cert- job. To basically. do their job. Yeah, right. So what do you think about this whole fake whipping thing? Well, it's very fake, right? That, yeah, uh, talking completely about absurd. A, yeah. t- talking about a photo that's taken out of context. It's 15 second shot that was taken out of context by people that simply do not understand what's on a horse. Right. And I think even the photographer I was spoken to about four days later said, I never witnessed anyone whip anything. Right, right. The shame of that, though, is we got lost in that rhetoric is that the uh, compassion that that Border Patrol agents exhibit on a daily basis. Right, right. And and, and so there's, you know, it's going back to the late 80s images where they consider Border Patrol agents kind of like stormtroopers, you know? Right, right, and, and, yeah. Yeah, in fact, instead of even calling them Border Patrol agents, they call them Border Guards now, which connotes oh, something right, different. Yeah, different, exactly. uh, different. And line. unfortunately, the administration has some of that perspective. It's not just outside actors who you're always going to have some wackos on the outside. In my new career, right, doing research, mm-hmm. and most of these projects are with men and women of DHS, mm-hmm. different segments, and just the relationships I've built over years. And it's sad to see the morale right. and the sense of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's, it's a shame because we had the opportunity to do something really special for our country. It's got to be a problem for recruiting, right, for Border Patrol. Oh, absolutely. And isn't the Border Patrol Academy, it's, isn't it out, outside El Paso somewhere? Where is the training facility? The, so the, so it's it's the, not in Georgia anymore, is it? So there's a federal law enforcement training right. center in Georgia, in Glencoe, Georgia. But the one that the Border Patrol agents are sent to are, is Artesia, New Mexico. Oh, that's right. Okay. So it's about three and a half, four hours. Oh, oh so it's not just in like the suburbs of El Paso. No, it's farther no. out. It's, oh, that's it's, interesting. It's, it's further out. And so there are continuing classes that come in. There, there is some recruiting that is occurring, uh, robust recruiting. I think generally, though, the whole occupation policing is very difficult. Well, that's true. Even Yeah, not even just the Border Patrol. I mean, right. Could you imagine being a police officer in Portland? Yeah, at this or point? Minneapolis. Or Minneapolis. Yeah. And surprise, they're having trouble recruiting new officers. It's yeah. like, well, imagine I'm, that. Really? Yeah. yeah. So the uh, Border Patrol is experienced some of that. Mm-hmm. Maybe not to those levels like Minneapolis or Portland. Right. But if this trend continues, it would not surprise me if it reached those levels. So you were in 
the Border Patrol when it was still INS, right? Absolutely, yes. And then so you transitioned to DHS. What is your thinking about DHS? In other words, is it too big? Should all the immigration pieces be pulled out into a separate department? That's kind of been my theory is there yeah. should be a Department of Immigration that has USCIS and the Border Patrol and ICE. And I'm not sure about how you deal with inspectors at the ports because there's a customs function as well as. A, so anyway, what are your thoughts about is it too big? Are you a lumper or a splitter, I guess, is the way to put it. Well, I go back, Mark, and, and think of back with INS, right? The, the mm -hmm. whole idea of getting the Border Patrol INS. Mm -hmm. So you had one house, the enforcement side, and the other side was the benefit side. Right. So when but they had one person at the head. They had one person at the head. Right. So when funny would come down, the biggest slice would go to the benefit side. Uh, it would always go to the benefit side. And so that's and just for listeners, that means the people processing green cards and citizenship and what absolutely. what USCIS does now. Yes, typically what we consider legitimate activity, right? right. People legal immigration legal of various kinds. Legal okay. immigration, and so the, the promise was, in essence, with DHS, was we're going to create almost like a police model, right? We're going to bring them out and think of border patrol agents and the people at the ports of entry, CBP officers, you know, the legacy customs, being kind of like the beat cop in uniform. Okay. And ICE investigations would have been the detectives of a police department. Okay. The enforcement removal operations, you know, kind of the jailers would have been, you know, the, the jail aspect. Sure. Within one entity. That never occurred. And so now you have, when I talked about jurisdictional issues, right? So now we have, you know, let's say ICE investigations and ERO and portions of CPP competing for resources. Oh, interesting. When they probably should be under one house. Right. Under that police model is originally we're looking at. And, uh, you know, if you look at that police model, you don't see a police department that has a social service aspect or benefits aspect. Right, right. And that they're referred to mm -hmm. a group like that. And that's where we missed out with the creation of DHS. Interesting. I would have loved to see that police model. You know, you would have CIS and things of that nature that would have provided those services but it would have been after the fact of the enforcement action. Right. The idea of Border Patrol agents having to worry other than doing their job as law enforcement officers just really dilutes what they're supposed to be doing out there. So what are your thoughts about, I mean, you weren't in ICE, but what are your thoughts about that? Because as you suggested, ICE has two parts. ERO is enforcement and removal operations is what we think of as the regular, it's like you said, the jailers, but the yeah. people who do the deportation. Yeah. And then HSI, Homeland Security Investigations, mm -hmm. are like the detectives. The problem is that HSI is a combination of former customs people, or at least customs perspective, as well as immigration. And politically, this has been true for years. They have no interest in doing immigration if they can avoid it. They're responsible for worksite investigations. They don't want to have anything to do with them. And so, I mean, in a sense, this administration is sort of abolishing ICE without abolishing ICE by saying, well, you can't do anything on the I part of ICE, but you, everything has to be on the C part of ICE, the customs part. Well, and, and again, that, I think that's a great example of policy by not doing anything, right? right. Even on the Border Patrol side, you know, what it's referred to is the legacy customs type people that right. were in, uh, in ICE. And, and the Border Patrol struggles with that too, to, to a certain degree. I think there was a very good understanding when DHS was created is that there would be those struggles to, to, to be able to come back. Right. I do think that there's got to be a greater emphasis on the I aspect in, in terms of the, uh, the immigration. Mm -hmm. When someone doesn't present themselves at a port of entry and we don't know who they are, that's a real danger right. to the United States. There's right. a real risk. We have no idea who they are, what their intentions are. Will it take another 9-11? I don't know. I hope not. Right. Uh, but I don't think we've grasped that well enough 
that say that's a danger. We should treat that like someone that's carrying drugs. Right. We should treat that like a huge customs violation that it's going to hurt us economically. And we simply have not matured to that level. Even among Border Patrol agents, I've seen you hear this all the time. And I think part of it is a response to the criticism is that, well, these are, you know, good people and we're just doing our job. You know, and, you know, I mean, most of them aren't terrorists, obviously. Yeah. But the point is, if you're not crossing where you're supposed to cross, then that itself that's wrong i mean in you other broke words, the law you broke the law and it's not just uh, yeah you don't have to have a nuclear weapon on your backpack in order to be somebody who has to be kept out of the united states if, if you don't have permission absolutely you know if you even go back to 9 11 the 19 hijackers right they, they all came through ports of entry things of that nature right. by a large part they weren't considered terrorists right it wasn't until they got to the united states and committed that act right and so are we willing, you know, of, of the 15,000 Haitians that come in, are we willing to wait for 19 people right. to get yeah. radicalized? Yeah, and the thing is, the, when the 19 hijackers, probably none of them should even have gotten visas just on normal grounds. Because I remember there was reporting on their visa. This is the State Department yep. issue. But, you know, there were comically inadequate visa applications that almost certainly should have gotten all of them rejected. At the very least, red flag, right? For yeah, just as regular people. In other words, not because they were potential terrorists. So can you imagine, Mark, you know, that's 19 that we're speaking of, right? And they had intel, right? Beforehand, right. they had intel. So just released about twelve to 13,000 people in our, in, yeah. into our... That's just from the Del Rio. I mean, that, every day it's going on yeah. in South Texas and everywhere else, too. So And so that's where it becomes problematic. And that's where I believe we have not matured. One is a Homeland Security enterprise, and, and even... Society's matured and looked at it and goes, hey, th this is a real problem. We don't right. know who, the, who they are. Right. So have you done any research on how DHS, how the whole Homeland Security Enterprise might be changed effectively, reorganized or something like that? No, we have not. Most of our work has been helping address operational challenges. Oh, okay. During our grants, for example. You what know, kinds of things? Tunnel detection is one dealing with unmanned aerial systems. By... The bad guys. By the bad guys. Oh, wow. Dealing with uh, those type of things. One of the things that I would have been really fascinated with, we did a study with the El Paso sector, is looking at, at morale. You know, How do agents view themselves in the occupation? Mm -hmm. How do they view how society looks at them right. and their leadership and things of that nature? Those are things that, that I like to take a look at. And again, I look at a lot of it curriculum, not only with DHS, training the curriculum. Right. But part of our work with the Department of State has been with the Columbia National Police. Oh, okay. They will look at some of the curriculum, how they train their officers, things of that nature. So, so for instance, this study about morale in Border Patrol agents in El Paso, what is that actually as a practical matter? What do, you, do you have graduate students who interview people? How does that just sort of the nuts and bolts of something as an example, how would that work? For that aspect, we produced a survey and it was a pretty right. lengthy survey. And so, Normally, you would do grad students of that nature. Mm -hmm. With El Paso, there's 11 border patrol stations, and each right. station has three shifts. Okay. And so when you ask someone to fill out a survey, and it's kind of a lengthy survey, mm -hmm. you probably better show up to the briefings and explain the survey. Oh, uh, okay. Because they'll look at it and say, Matt, it's right, one right. more one thing. One more piece of paper. One yeah, more piece right, of paper. Yeah, right. It's much different when you show up on the midnight shift in Largeburg, New Mexico, or yeah. Deming, New Mexico, and say, such and, we're such and such, we're doing the survey. Have you done that yourself, Gondos? Yes, yes. Yeah, well, you have credibility, presumably, with those guys. And the return on surveys was phenomenal. Okay. You know, a sector that has, at that time, had about 2,100 Border Patrol agents. 
we had about 800 surveys returned, okay, well, which, yeah. which is in research, that's a really huge yeah, number. It's, it's, it's yeah. probably about three times higher like than, than 35, 40% or 40%, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It really gives you a good idea. And so what we ended up doing is once we got the surveys, there were some concepts that kind of developed on, on that and uh, we put some focus groups together. Oh, okay. Motor patrol agents of various experiences and regions and say, hey, you know, the surveys had these things, you know, what does that mean to you? Right. Interesting. And to be able to take a look at that. So it's based on, you know, quantitative and some qualitative measures, but mostly the quantitative measures. And in other projects that we had before, like let's say tunnel detection mm-hmm. ongoing, that's more of a, the hard science, right? It's, it's mathematicians. And, and the, the radar and the ground and all that sort of thing. And, there, and there's a, actually a different approach. Radars is the most commonly, you know, thought of response. But one of our researchers thought about using earthquake sensors to detect Motion. Interesting. Interesting. And so the benefit for DHS is that you're not buying uh, state-of-the-art equipment, right? Oh, it's off-the-shelf stuff. Off-the-shelf. It's oh. it's information that already exists that's being produced. Okay. Huh. And so that's one of the things that part of my work at UTIP is to help translate what a practitioner needs and what a uh, university would like to produce. Right. You know, everyone likes to produce state-of-the-art whiz bang stuff on that. Right. Right. But they have to understand that DHS really doesn't have, you know, a PhD person that can dedicate just to run your system. Right. And so you, you try to look at manners as goes, what's existing that, that they could utilize mm-hmm. and easy to upgrade when you have to be able to upgrade those things. Interesting. And so that's the approach we took. So my last question is, you're on a university here. I don't know anything about what the culture in UTEP is, but lots of universities have gotten hostile to the idea of border enforcement and immigration control and what have you. Is it like that here generally in the university? Do you get any kind of pushback? How does that work? What's your place here at the university like? You, you know, uh, I would say that we really don't get any pushback to center that we do our, our work. In fact, I never have a shortage of grad students. Okay. They'll be able to hire. But we're very unique in El Paso region. When you consider the number of Border Patrol agents, all of at the ports of entry, ICE agents, police, the sheriffs, FBI. There's about a population, about eight to 9,000 law enforcement officers. I see. Wow. Okay. And then you have Fort Bliss. Right. And so it has a a different orientation than other cities. I see what you mean. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think my sense is, you know, when they talk about the people who are, who have talked about how the border really isn't all that dangerous, poo-pooing the idea, they say, look, El Paso has a very low crime rate. I'm like, there's police officers on every, everywhere. I mean, you don't even know they're police officers. They're everywhere. Yeah, that's very accurate. You know what? Uh, usually, when, when you when you have uh, folks of that nature, what I found in my experience is either El Paso, Nogales, San Ysidro, they've never spent any time on on the border, and really, what they're uttering is not realistic. So, in a sense, this what you do might be harder to do if it were somewhere other than El Paso. Say, and I'm not picking on any particular university, but you know, University of Colorado or something like that, or someplace in the East Coast, you might have very different local culture, as it were, that wouldn't be as supportive. Is that fair to say? I think that's very fair to say. There just isn't a, uh, the same type of understanding. Right. You know, many of my classes, there are students that want to get into law enforcement, mm-hmm. right? And so this very room that we're in, we'll do practice oral hiring interviews. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And so tell the students, you know, I have a lot of experience with this. If you'd like me to look at a resume, you'd like me to do a practice interview. And we'll, we'll sit and do practice interviews, and uh, oftentimes the interviews I, I do with them are much more difficult than their actual interview. <laughs> well, that's good. That's, so. that's the intent. Interesting. Okay, well, Victor, I appreciate 
your time. Is there information online if people want to learn more about your, it's the Center for Law and Human Behavior? Is that what it's called? It, it sure is. If, if you were to simple, uh, simply Google Center for Law and Human Behavior. At UTEP, at University UTEP. of Texas, El yep. Paso. It'll pop up the website and you'll see much of our work that's placed there and some of the things that we do, uh, things that we want to do in the future. And so we're very proud and very excited about the work that we do. I think we're one of the few centers along the Southwest border that's looking at the Homeland Security enterprise in a different manner. Right, right. Thank you, Victor Monjares from UTEP, University of Texas, El Paso, the Center for Law and Human Behavior. Thanks for joining us and thanks for having me here in your office during our El Paso visit. And we'll, uh, we'll keep in touch. Thank you very much. And finally, I wanted to talk about something I saw after the interview with Victor. We went and visited the Border Patrol Museum, the National Border Patrol Museum, which is in El Paso, sort of at the edge of town. And specifically, there's a memorial room with names and photographs of all the agents over the past century and more who have fallen in the line of duty while in the Border Patrol. The some of them, as happens in any law enforcement agency or military, some of them died in accidents of various kinds, but many of them fell victim to criminals. A hundred years ago, it would have been bootleggers, more recently, drug smugglers and alien smugglers. They have photos there from, I think, 1919 is the earliest one they have up there. They have the ones who died in 2020 up there, and then at the end of the year, they get the full accounting of those who lost their lives in the line of duty for this year, for 2021, and then they put up their photos and names as well. And there had been several this year, one literally I think just a couple of weeks before our visit, who had lost his life in the Deming, New Mexico area, which we actually also visited later. It's outside El Paso. But what made me think of it is that I was visiting that memorial room literally just the week after the hoax about the Border Patrol agents on horseback supposedly whipping illegal immigrants. It was uh, lied from the beginning. It was obviously fake. And yet it got significant traction, not just in the media, but from politicians and not just any politicians, but the president and vice president themselves called out the Border Patrol agents and expressed their, what can only be described as contempt for the agents without even understanding what happened, when in fact, essentially nothing happened. Nobody was whipped. The whole thing was obviously made up. And it struck me that the names and faces in that memorial room are the price we ask agents to pay, we ask the Border Patrol to pay for doing its job. The Border Patrol on land, along with the Coast Guard at sea, protects what amounts to the skin, the outer skin of the body politic, to use a metaphor. And uh, lots of things come in and out, but their job is to make sure that things don't get in that aren't supposed to get in people and objects and what have you. And that is, you know, an essential part of nationhood. You need your skin to stay alive as a body. And the body politic likewise needs the skin of a border and needs that border 
to be policed and protected properly. And the people doing that job deserve some basic respect. Obviously, people are people. There are always possibilities for misconduct and what have you. That's just the way human beings are. But as we saw in the comparable situation in urban areas, when you're talking about municipal police departments, when their leaderships last year expressed not only really disapproval of the police, the municipal police, but really a kind of contempt for what they do, guess what? It turns out to be difficult to recruit officers and you end up with the police force not being able to do as good a job as it's supposed to do. And you saw in urban areas and are seeing even now huge increases in crime that are clearly attributable to the way the political authorities in those cities treated and approached their police departments. Well, you see a similar phenomenon with the Border Patrol. I mean, even on top of all of the policy mistakes that this administration is making that are driving a lot of the, this migrant crisis, the contempt that this administration has, starting from the president on down, for its own employees, for its own law enforcement officers, in this case for the Border Patrol, has to be a contributor to this migration crisis. And in looking at those names and photographs, you really do get hit by the price that we ask people to pay, potentially, for defending the outer limits of the United States, defending the membrane, as it were, the skin that is the outside edge, the borders of our country. And Border Patrol agents deserve more respect than the president and the vice president showed them. I don't know if either one of them will learn a lesson from this, from the fact that their comments, their hasty comments, turn out to have been based on lies. I hope they would. You know, I'm always cautiously optimistic, but I don't expect much. But maybe if Vice President Harris, when she briefly had a stopover in El Paso as her sort of checking the box off of visiting the border, if she'd spent an extra half hour and gone up to the Border Patrol Museum and seen the names and faces of agents who had given their lives in the course of their duties protecting the country, I can at least hope that their future conduct and rhetoric would be less irresponsible. This is Mark Krikorian signing off for this week for Parsing Immigration Policy. I hope you'll join us next week. Thank you.